0: Welcome to Human Race, I'm David Weinberg, filling in for Rachel while she's away on maternity leave. On each episode of Human Race, we tell a story about runners and the world of running. And today we have a very special episode for you. We have two stories. One is about a runner who set a surprising marathon goal after volunteering for a major surgery to save his mother-in-law's life. But first, a classic. One of my favorite radio stories ever produced. It first aired in 1984, and it's a story about why we run. And by we, I don't mean runners, I mean human beings. In the 1980s, a biologist named Dave Carrier came up with a controversial theory about human evolution. He called it the running hypothesis, and it was based on the idea that humans became elite long-distance runners so that we could hunt large game by chasing it on foot until the animal collapsed from exhaustion. So Carrier and his brother, a radio producer named Scott, went to Wyoming to prove this theory by trying to run down antelope until they collapsed. And Scott made a radio story about it, which you're about to hear. And after the story, we'll talk with Dave Carrier about what has happened to his idea over the last 30 years, and why his new research about human nature is upsetting even more of the scientific community today. Here's Scott Carrier with his story, Running After Antelope.
1: Yeah, there they go.
2: What? There they go, you see him crossing over right. there? No. Over to the right, Off, quite a ways away, in fact.
3: Way out there. A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to Wyoming to I mean, run down an antelope. I
2: only see three over there.
3: Well, there were about eight down there. Yeah. yeah still- it was August, and our plan was to chase one animal until it overheated and collapsed. It just took off running. Okay. You want to follow it?
2: Yeah. really big flight.
3: <laughs> we had good reasons for what we were doing. One was that it seemed entirely possible, another had to do with an argument concerning human evolution. It's a scientific argument, so it takes a few minutes to explain. Remember the scene in 2001 where an ape man realizes he can use a bone as a weapon and murders another ape man? Then he throws the bone in the air and it becomes a space station orbiting the Earth. The theory behind this scene is that we separated from the apes when we stood upright and freed our hands to make and use tools, especially weapon-type tools for hunting and killing other animals. It's called the Hunting Hypothesis. And there's nothing wrong with it, except that we don't have any physical evidence to support it. We just haven't found any tools or weapons that are that old. Well, some of the work that my brother does as a biologist made him interested in another theory of human evolution. You might call it the running hypothesis. He believed that he and I were probably good enough runners to be able to run down big game without using any weapons at all. And he thought that if we could do it, then maybe our early ancestors could have done it too. Shortly before we went to Wyoming, I went to see Owen Lovejoy. He teaches anthropology at Kent State University. We talked about the running hypothesis, and he thought it was pretty funny.
4: <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is think about it for a minute. I mean, what game are they going to run down? Things like. Uh, uh, Wildebeest or something,
3: mm-hmm. zebra,
4: and and they're just going to start off running after this thing, without any you know, without any advanced weaponry of any kind. They've got no spears, right? No bow and arrow, and they just start running after a wildebeest. Yeah,
3: well, I think that's the idea that they have.
4: Uh-huh. The 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 weak link in that whole behavior that you're describing is the inability of the animal to run any faster because it's so damn slow, and it's so damn slow because it's a clumsy biped. Is that an animal adapted to hunting? Slow, awkward, little, no olfaction, no uh, protective vision. If it were an effective quadruped, it could do everything that you're describing in half the time. I mean, imagine a bunch of Paiute Indians that could run as rapidly and as successfully as a German Shepherd dog. (laughs) <laughs> They'd catch the thing in th- you know, three minutes and devour it. Well, I just happen to have a German Shepherd
3: and I take him with me when I go running. Let's go. <coughs> and Lovejoy's right, he's a better runner than I am. In fact, most of the time, he'd rather have me take my bicycle. <coughs> so there's no question about me being slower. But as far as being clumsy, Lovejoy calls bipedalism clumsy because of reasons that have to do with biomechanics. Running bipedally takes twice as much energy as running quadrupedally. That is, when my dog and I run, he uses half the energy that I do. So Lovejoy and many other anthropologists think it's crazy to assume that the survival strategy of the early hominids involved running after quadrupeds. They've just got us beat, both in terms of speed and efficiency. But the thing is, if my dog and I go running in the summer, in the middle of the day, when temperatures hit 85 to 100 or more degrees, it's a whole different ball game. He'll come with me and run for a while, but then he walks and lags behind, and sometimes he just goes home. So if I'm an awkward and clumsy biped, why can I outrun my dog? Well, it's because he overheats. The main way that he and most other quadrupeds cool themselves when they run is by breathing. The air coming in and going out of their mouth evaporates water off their tongues. And we do this too, but we do it all over our body by sweating. And then we get a nice flow of air directly over our skin because we don't have a fur coat. So we can't run as fast as a quadruped, but we can run farther, especially in high heat. And when you remember that we're using twice the energy, this seems like a very strange biological paradox. And it was this paradox, combined with the argument about not being able to hunt without tools, that made my brother and I decide it was time to try to run down an antelope. capra americana, the pronghorn, the second fastest land mammal on the planet. We thought that if we could keep one running for two hours on a hot day, we'd have it beat.
2: What happened? I, they, I didn't, they didn't give me a chance. I uh, I was able to follow follow them for about 30 minutes, but the problem was I wasn't sure if I was following the same ones I started following because I started out following four, buck, two uh, does and, and, and a younger one. Huh. And uh, they ran into, after about 10 minutes, they ran into a group of about five more antelope, went over a hill, and then on the other side of the hill they broke into two groups again. And so I think I ended up following the same four. I couldn't be sure. And I followed them for another 15 minutes, and then they ran into a much larger group, ran four ways, and uh, followed that larger group for a while, and then that group broke into at least two more groups. And at that point, I just sort of gave up and quit, quit following them, because I, I didn't know, you know which, which individuals I, I was chasing. Huh. And then I got confused on the roads. I mean, where's the road we were on? It's down here? Yeah. Okay, what happened was I came out on this road, way over there uh. somewhere, and, uh, and I got lost. I mean, I, I didn't know where really where I was. I felt like that road, I was walking along that road for about 15 minutes. I felt like that was the wrong direction. But, uh, so we started over there. Yeah. Well, they ran in a circle then. Um, I mean, because we went off, I don't remember crossing this road, but I must've originally, early this, on. This one? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, they ran in a circle. They came back. Um, well, strike one, huh. so. What do you what do you think we should do? Well, I think we should go look for some more. Not not keep doing these? Well I don't know where they are. I, I think the main group is coming off the backway. They may have circled back around to where they were originally in here. And then
3: It could have been the Serengeti, orange and green and purple plains, a hot sun, thin high clouds, blue mountains on the horizon. (laughs) They just zoomed, and they weren't stopping. It could have been the Serengeti, but we were no primitive hunters. We quickly realized we knew nothing about the animal we were chasing or the land we were running on. We ran after several herds that first day without much success. (laughs) That night, sleeping out, I remember feeling very high in terms of elevation, like being dizzy. There weren't any clouds in the sky, and it just seemed like too much open space. Satellites in orbit, the moon in orbit, an antelope in the bushes, chewing their cuds and laughing amongst themselves. The next morning, we ate a breakfast of chocolate chip cookies and orange juice and walked around waiting for the air to heat up.
2: What is it? It's a white-tailed jackrabbit.
3: We found dead animals, bare bones, an abandoned house. You think someone used to live here? We saw dust devils, horned toads, an eagle.
2: Oh, this is nice.
3: We found a small lake, some badlands, and a rattlesnake. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it never did get very hot that day. But in the afternoon, we had a good long chase after a female and two males. They ran in circles around an area of about 10 square miles. There were two hills and a long smooth valley in between and the chase went up and around and back and forth between these hills. The antelope running short periods of time but covering long distances and then stopping and waiting for us to catch up. The two males ran behind the female as if they were trying to protect her. And sometimes they'd all go in different directions. But we stayed behind the female and the males would eventually rejoin her. One thing we'd learned the day before was that we could run much less distance than the antelopes by staying well inside their circle. And we were also starting to communicate with each other over long distances. For instance, if my brother was on top of one of the hills and he could see where the antelope were going, he'd point and I wouldn't have to run to the top of the hill. So we were running after these three and feeling pretty good about not letting them ditches. And a couple times, we even got within 50 yards of them. And I'd look into their eyes, trying to see some sign of fear or fatigue. But all I kept seeing were very quiet animals that seemed to know exactly who we were, what we were proposing, and didn't seem to be in the least bit worried. Anyway, we ran after these three for about an hour, and then they found a large herd, or the herd found them. And they ran up and over a hill, and by the time we got to the top of the hill, the herd had split into three groups of about three or four antelopes each. And each of the groups seemed to have at least one female that looked exactly like the one we'd started chasing. The magic shell game trick, again. We weren't really all that physically tired, mainly mentally beaten, and we went home. I haven't gone back to Wyoming for the purpose of chasing antelope, but I drive through there sometimes on my way somewhere else. And one time last spring, I was going east, and there was a train along the highway also going east at about the same speed. And suddenly there were three antelope running alongside the engine, chasing it. It was incredible. It was even more incredible to see the three of them simultaneously speed up, pull out in front of the engine, and fly across the tracks. I pulled over and waited for the train to go by, and there they were, three young males, looking back at me with those same black eyes and hardly breathing at all.
0: It's been over 30 years since Dave Carrier first came up with a running hypothesis. And a lot has happened in the world of evolutionary biology since then. And I wanted to know if Carrier's theory has held up over time. So I called him at his office at the University of Utah. And he told me that for 20 years after his study was published, it was largely ignored by the
1: scientific community. Uh, the anthropologist, for the most part, just rejected the idea. So uh, it was really... Uh, a decade or two before people started taking it seriously. One of the people who who first really started looking at it from from an anatomical perspective was my advisor here at Utah, Dennis Bramble.
0: Twenty years after Carrier's paper was published, his advisor, Dennis Bramble, teamed up with a Harvard anthropologist named Dan Lieberman. And together, they published a paper titled Endurance Running and the Evolution of Homo.
1: That was a high-profile paper. It got lots of people's attention. But still, I don't think people were taking it seriously until two years later in 2006.
0: In 2006, there was a shift in thinking in the scientific community. That was the year another human evolutionary biologist named Louis Liebenberg discovered a tribe in the Kalahari Desert who were still hunting large prey, in this case, kudu, by chasing them to exhaustion and extreme heat.
1: I think that turned the... the tide in terms of people taking this seriously. And it's the it's, it's single best example we have documenting uh, uh, individuals actually running prey to exhaustion. And, the, the, you know, the difference between the Bushmen and uh, my brother and I were just—they knew what they were doing. We didn't have a clue.
0: When the Carrier brothers tried to chase down Antelope in Wyoming, They were trying to keep their eyes on a single animal, which proved impossible as it blended in and out of the herd. But the Bushmen of the Kalahari are expert trackers, and they're able to follow the tracks of a single animal, even as it flows into a crowd of others.
1: And they're able to do that for for hours on end, and that's how they're able to succeed.
0: What has it been like to see this theory that you have become accepted? Has it changed your standing in
1: the community in any way? To be, to be honest, it, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a sore note for a couple of reasons. So I just, I just if we could avoid that question, it'd probably be okay, better. Okay, it's just, you know, you get into personal relationships and politics, and it's, it's, it's sort of a mess. I mean, it has, it is, it has been good to see uh, it, this idea um, take off and go, and it really has.
0: Around midnight, the night before I interviewed Dave Carrier, I got an email from his brother Scott. He had something he wanted to tell me about the running hypothesis. He said that the idea that humans evolved as endurance predators has a similar power to the ring in the Tolkien books. He said he'd seen five people who believed that they had come up with the idea and they'd become possessed by it, and that his brother was one of them. I asked Dave about this idea that his running hypothesis has a kind of power over people.
1: It does have power, simply because... Endurance running is an incredibly powerful, in some ways, addicting activity, right? For many of us, it is a form of self-medication. It's, it, it becomes a focal point for some individual's lives. Running almost certainly played a critical role in the evolution of our species, of, of, or even of our genus, of early Homo, going back 2 million years. We were built for running at, at that point. But since then, you know, humans have moved into a variety of environments and changed circumstances in which they had to live and, and in different, different environments select for different behaviors and different physical uh, uh, performances, right? Not everyone is, is, is built for running. And, and this is one of the things that I think uh, everybody has to keep in mind.
0: Over these last 20 years, while other people have become possessed by the running hypothesis, and other scientists have studied it. Carrier himself has gone in another direction, one that looks at a very different human activity to explain why we as a species climbed down out of the trees and started walking around on two legs.
1: For the past 15 years or so, we've been looking at sort of addressing the question of whether or not, in addition to being specialized for running, that there are aspects of our anatomy that represent specialization or adaptation for physical fighting.
0: Carrier's new research looks in part at how our hands evolved over time. And he argues that one of the reasons our hands adapted the way they did was so we could make a fist and use it as a weapon against other humans.
1: If the hand did become a weapon, you would expect that the primary target of the hand would also have undergone evolution, in this case for defense.
0: And in our case, the primary target of that hand, of that closed fist punch, is our face. And Carrier's research suggests that the bones of our face adapted to withstand punches at the same time our hands adapted to become weapons. In the course of his research, Dave Carrier also spent a lot of time studying the muscles of the human leg, and he made a discovery. It turns out that each individual muscle is tuned to run at an optimal speed, And they're not tuned to run at the same speed. One clear example of this is to think of the difference in body types between sprinters and long-distance runners. The body of a sprinter looks a lot more like that of a boxer. Their muscles are much bigger and better built for rapid bursts of energy, unlike endurance runners who are taller and thinner. And that same variation between a sprinter and an endurance runner exists together in our own bodies.
1: So our muscles are not tuned to all run at the same speed, which means that when we're running at a given speed, again, we're not, we're not as economical as we might be if, if every muscle had that same optimal speed. So again, this is suggesting that um, yes, we're specialized for run, running, we're, we're exceptional, we're elite distance runners, but we're not as good as we could be, and the reason we're not as good as we could be is because we have to do other things.
0: Like punch each other in the face.
1: Like, punch each other in the face or be ready to be punched in the face. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. After the break, we have another story for you about how one woman's tweet asking for a human organ became a turning point in another man's life. Also, how to hide an engagement ring in your running clothes. That's after the break. Welcome back to Human Race. This next story comes to us from Karen Given, a radio producer at WBUR in Boston. It's about a man who made one of the biggest sacrifices you can make. He donated his kidney to save the life of his mother-in-law. And then he ran a marathon. Marathon.
5: Stephen russo is a daily columnist for The Wall Street Journal. A few years back, he met his now wife, Shelley Banjo. She was working at The Wall Street Journal, too. And she told him about polycystic kidney disease. It runs in her family.
6: It wasn't on the third date, but, you know, it was, you know, I would say within the first year of dating, this this came up. Shelley's mom would ultimately need a transplant at some point. The timing was unknown. It could be in a year. It could be in five years. It could be ten years. Who knows? But it was, this was just something that was on the horizon.
5: Steve says he just tried to do the things that good companions do. He listened. He comforted. He hoped for the best. Life went on. The disease progressed. Shelley's mom, Batya, got sicker. Stephen Shelley's relationship progressed, which led to happier developments.
6: So I proposed to Shelley in March, end of March, 2015. Really, the first thought that came to mind was it has to be running-related somehow. It was a Sunday morning in Central Park, and I tried to make it as normal of a run as possible. Like, "Hey, Shelly, let's go running this morning." Okay, fine.
5: How'd you hide a ring in running clothes?
6: <laughs> uh, so I had it in the box, and I put the box in this, this running jacket that I was wearing. And I thought that I caught her glancing at it. And I kind of, in my head, I kind of freaked out. I was like, oh my God, she knows something's up.
5: Shelly didn't know. After running for about a mile, Steve stopped, got on one knee, and proposed. Shelly's sister was there to take pictures. But Batya Banjo was still getting sicker doctors told her it was time for a kidney transplant. The family had already started the search for a living donor.
6: We put a flyer out. I mean, literally, we made this flyer and Shelly posted it and posted it on Twitter. And we actually had 11 people raise their hand and went and got tested.
5: 11 people stepped up. 11 people were medically disqualified.
6: Each one, one after the other, you get your hopes up and you get really excited. And then you get the bad news. I'm watching very interesting people step up. I'm watching complete strangers from the internet. I'm watching close friends. I watch my own aunt go and get tested. I'm sitting here thinking to myself if all these people can raise their hands, why can't I?
5: Why not, Steve? I can think of one reason. Shelly might need a kidney someday, the disease runs in her family. But Steve and Shelley decided to focus on the current need rather than worry about a potential need later. So Steve went in for testing. At first, no one knew but Shelley. They didn't want to get the family's hopes up. Besides, Steve had some tough questions for the doctors.
6: You know, at the time, I had I had ran five marathons, jeez, uh, fifteen to twenty half marathons. I mean, this was this is really important to me. It was the first thing I, I asked them. I said, "Will I be able to run?" And if they had said no, oh God. I just asked myself a difficult question. I don't know how I would have I don't know how I would have responded to that. But thank God they said yes, so I don't have to answer that question now. But I wanted to know what the sacrifices were ahead of time, and this would have been a really, really huge one for me.
5: Steve decided the risks were minimal and the potential reward was huge. So Steve and Shelley called Batya to tell her the news.
6: There was just silence at first. She was just really just speechless. She said, oh, you're my lifesaver. And, you know, it made me a little nervous at first. It's like, I, I didn't do anything yet. So hold on, let's let's wait a second.
5: But it wasn't Steve who had second thoughts. It was Batya. And even though doctors said that she should have the operation right away, Batya was firm. The transplant would have to wait until after the wedding, scheduled for May 29th, 2016.
6: I don't know what it was. Maybe it was adrenaline or maybe it was just positive emotions, but everything leading up to the wedding, you know, she seemed to be feeling better. She did an amazing hora. We did the hora twice, actually, at the wedding, and she was amazing both times. If you didn't know anything, she seemed to be pretty much fine. But, I mean, all the medical charts would say otherwise.
5: Three weeks later, Stephen Shelley woke up at 4 a.m. to meet her parents in New York.
6: We're all dressed in sweatpants and pajamas and there's like, you know, a a little bit of a nervous tension and Shelly's dad just turns to the doorman and and goes, we're all getting ready to go play basketball. (laughs) And that just like really just sort of like calmed everyone just a little bit right right then and there.
5: Steve's operation took 90 minutes. Batya's took three hours. Both went well, though Steve was in more pain than he expected immediately after the surgery. But then came the moment that Steve and Batya had been waiting for.
6: They wheeled me over into her area. She just reached out and grabbed my hand, and I grabbed her hand, and she just said, you know, you, you saved my life. And it's, I mean, it's... Not every day someone says that to you. And so that was just so powerful to me. Um,
5: It sounds like it's still powerful to you.
6: Oh, I mean, absolutely.
5: At first, Steve, the accomplished marathon runner, says he walked so slowly that he had to find the intersections in New York City that would give him a little extra time to make it across. But Steve wanted to run.
6: I remember exactly one month after the transplant, uh, Shelly and I did this four-mile run in Central Park. So this was a four-mile race, and basically I would walk for about 10 minutes, I would very, very slowly jog for two or three minutes, and then I would just repeat the process.
5: Steve started to get down on himself. He worried that his road to recovery and this four-mile race would never end.
6: You know, Shelly was she was the best. She just said, it's going to be fine. You're doing this. You're doing this a month after the transplant. That's just amazing in and of itself. Don't worry about your time. Don't worry. It doesn't matter. You're doing it. At the time, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to do the marathon. I'm definitely going to do the marathon. I may not do it as fast as I'd like to do it. And I sure I better go faster than I'm going now. But I was thinking I'm going to somehow be able to do it.
5: That was July 16th. Steve had less than four months to get ready for the New York City Marathon. Steve's doctors told him that as long as he felt good, he should keep training. And as his runs got longer and faster, Steve's wife had some more specific advice.
6: Oh, man, (laughs) Shelly, she kept telling me, she said, don't run faster than an eight-minute mile. Don't run faster than it at all. And you know, some of these shorter runs, I'm like, oh, but I feel, I feel good, like, come on, just let me go. And just, no, don't do it.
5: With each passing long run, Steve felt better. He felt stronger. Before he knew it, November 6th had arrived. Bright and sunny, temperatures in the mid-50s, it was a beautiful day for a marathon. But Steve had memories of other races running through his mind.
6: As most runners do, usually hit the wall at mile 18, 19 or 20, and the last quarter of the marathon is a disaster or whatever. And so I'm running this and I I have Shelly's voice in my head the whole time saying, make sure you stay on your pace, stay on that eight-minute pace.
5: But by mile 12 or 13, Steve got frustrated with going so slowly he started running faster.
6: Mile 15 and 16, you go over the Queensboro Bridge. That's the one spot in the marathon where there are basically no spectators at all. So all you're hearing is just the footsteps and, and people breathing and that's it. You know, get over the bridge, get into Manhattan. It's just so loud and there's so much energy. And I start seeing a lot of my friends I'm feeling really good and uh, I get to, you know, mile 19, mile 20 and I'm thinking to myself, this is the spot that I usually usually just really really start falling apart and but the opposite was was happening. I I was actually feeling stronger. I don't know what it was. I guess just all these emotions from everything from the wedding, from the the honeymoon, from the transplant, from the recovery, just everything. All these emotions were all bottled up into this one race letting them go and, and just running it, just, I felt amazing. And like, I, I crossed the finish line and I was so pumped up. You know, I mean, I, I'm usually dead after a marathon, usually just so exhausted. And I I don't know, I, I just felt absolutely amazing.
5: Just five months after donating his kidney, Steve had run a personal best, and his mother-in-law is doing well too. She followed his run online from her home in Texas. The National Kidney Foundation says 13 people die every day waiting for a kidney. And living donor rates have fallen over the past decade. But Steve Rusolillo hopes that if people hear his story, maybe they'll help reverse that trend.
6: It's funny, I have this amazing group of friends, and we all do this Hoboken Thanksgiving together. We have this tradition every year, everyone goes around and says what they're thankful for. You know, I was reliving the story again, and... It's more powerful than ever because I know how important it is, but at the end of the day, it was not that big of a sacrifice for me. My life has not changed at all. I haven't given up anything. I guess I've given up a kidney. But other than that, though, I mean, I, I'm i living the same life that I was living beforehand. The fact that I could do this whole transplant and and, and feel as well as I did and run as well as I did... Other people can get out there and other people can donate and other people can run a marathon afterward and it'll be totally fine.
5: All right, but you are not saying that donating a kidney will make you a faster runner, right? No, that's right.
6: Yeah, there's the causation correlation. You know, I got to think about that.
0: (laughs) That story first aired on the show Only a Game back in November. And this week I talked to Karen to get an update. I wanted to know how everyone was doing. And she talked to Steve recently and said he's doing great.
5: Yeah. He's, he says they're all still happy and healthy and good. Um, he and his wife Shelly are finally getting to take their honeymoon, which is great. But no, life is just going along like it should be at this point.
4: And how is his mother-in-law? Is she doing, doing well?
5: Yeah, she's doing great. Yeah. So she had some um, setbacks after the transplant, which is pretty normal and pretty expected. So she didn't um, get better right away. But since September, he says it's all been up. You know, everything's been looking better and better all the time for her and she's doing great.
4: That's great. I know you mentioned in the story that his wife is at risk for the same disease. Do you know if there's been any updates there? Is she
5: yeah, she's she's fine for now, but yeah, it's a it's a genetic condition and um she could get it someday. She might not. Um and and he and I kind of talked about this because I uh, you know, I mean, I thought and and uh the people I work with sort of had the same sort of um I mean, it's it's kind of a cynical thought, but I was like, gee, wouldn't wouldn't you want to save your extra kidney for your wife? <laughs> and um and he was he he's just like he's a very pragmatic guy and he's like well she might never get sick um or if she does who knows by then some things could change you know um living or- organ donation could get easier like it's very difficult in terms of um some people have trouble with insurance right now when it comes to living organ donation. And so he's like, that might change, or maybe they'll come up with you know, artificial kidneys, and you won't need a living donor. You won't need a donor at all. And so he's like, let's, let's deal with that when and if that comes. Let's deal with botcha now.
0: One thing that Karen had to leave out of the story that she thought was interesting was the way that Steve went about making the decision to donate his kidney. And in some ways, it has a lot to do with his job, writing about the stock market.
5: All day long, he's looking at these risk analysis of things, you know, usually stocks, you know, how much does the stock cost? What is the possible um, benefit of the stock? So he has like this, this very analytical mind. And and that's how he pr- approached this decision, too. So he didn't approach it emotionally, like I think I would, right? Like I would, I would look at the person who might die. And I'd say, is that person, (laughs) someone I want to risk my life to save, right? And he looked at it like, well, the chances of something going wrong on my end are very, very slim. Um, Here are all the things that I've been told I'm going to go through, I'm going to in a lot of pain right afterwards i'm gonna um you know have to stop running for four weeks i'm gonna have this recovery period but then it's gonna be okay you know and on the other side here's a person who would die if i didn't do this so you know he he just it's like he did the math (laughs) which is um which i thought was a really interesting way to approach a question like this
0: This episode of Human Race was produced by Scott Carrier and Karen Given. You can find more of Scott's stories on his amazing podcast. It's called Home of the Brave. Karen Givens' show, where you can hear lots of great stories about sports, is called Only a Game. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor of this podcast. Human Race is a proud member of Panoply.